Our Holy Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord Jesus, thank you for the invitation that you've given us to come to you. As we're praying, one of the the verses I've been meditating on is, is Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all of you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, for I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in those verses, I feel like there's two invitations that Jesus gives us. The first one is to come to him. And the second one is to take up on his yoke and to learn from him. And I don't know about you, but those verses just kind of really hit me because so many times I feel weary and heavy, distracted, all the many things that needs to be done and all the things that have not been done. And I don't know, maybe that's for some of you. You're just weary, you're burdened, and you're overwhelmed by life. And why don't you just come to the Lord, take up that invitation to come to Him, to come in under His yoke and to learn from Him and to find rest for your souls. And so why don't you take some time right now and just come to the Lord? Whatever you're carrying, whatever burden you're carrying, just lay it down and come in under his yoke and learn from him. Maybe for some of you, you're tired of being perfect and you feel like you're constantly messing up because you're looking to yourself for salvation. Maybe for some of you, you're tired because you're trying to be all things to all people and you cannot do it. Maybe you're tired because you're trying to satisfy everybody, trying to make everybody happy, and you just feel like at the end of the day, you can't make anybody happy. Maybe you're tired because you're trying to make ends meet, and you're trying to provide for yourself, and you're finding out that you're not a very good provider. And so this is the invitation that all these things that we've put on ourselves, that we're carrying, that we're trying to accomplish, that we're trying to achieve, may we lay those things aside. May we come to Jesus and come in under his yoke, knowing that he is the only one that provides, that he is the only one that satisfies, that he is the only one where salvation is accomplished. He's the only one that gives meaning. He's the only one that gives purpose. He's the only one that gives significance. May we learn from him. May we lean in on him. May we trust him. May we be overwhelmed by him. And so, Lord Jesus, you know each and every one in this room. You know what we're feeling. You know what we're experiencing. You know what we're thinking. You know what we're going through. You know how weary some of us are. You know the heavy burdens we've been placing on ourselves and trying to carry. And would you come now and meet us individually and corporately meet us where we are in life? May you speak truth into our lives and to our hearts. May you open up our eyes and our minds. May we hear the gospel. May we be encouraged and strengthened by the gospel. May we be convicted by the gospel. May we be transformed by your gospel. 
And so come, as we open up your word, may you speak to us. Open up our eyes, open up our hearts, and open up our minds. May it minister to us, and may we walk out of here encouraged and transformed with new eyes as we look to you for everything in life. And we love you, and we praise you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you. Welcome uh, to Forest Park. Uh, before we get into the word, a real quick announcement. Don't forget, um, this Sunday, today at 6 o'clock, we're having our member gathering. Um, and so that's going to be a wonderful time for us to, to celebrate, to see what the Lord has done, to reflect, and even talk a little bit about the future um, when it comes to discipleship and also kind of discussing uh, any questions that you might have with answering, uh, with opening up Ignite and nursery so next week god willing that's still the plan uh, for us to open up ignite and the nursery for the 10:30 service for some of you with little kids all of you you can say amen praise the lord but i am so proud of all of you uh just how you've endured for almost a year uh, sticking out with your kids in the service. Uh, most of them have done great. Obviously, uh, some, sometimes there were good days, sometimes there were bad days, but for the most part, you guys have done phenomenal. Uh, one of the things I do not like about opening up Ignite and Nursery, and I'm just going to admit it, is for the first time I feel like children know who their pastor is. Because seriously, like most of the time, kids have no idea who I am. Not that I need them to know who I am, but they don't see me. Uh, they just go to their classrooms, and now uh, they get to see me. They get to hear from me. They probably don't listen or pay attention to me, but it's fine. But at least they're drawing pictures and giving them their pictures. Uh, so that's one of the things I am going to miss. Um, but hopefully we'll still uh, continue with this with um, a couple of family services where all the kids will be able to participate uh, maybe once a month as we sit together as a family under the Word of God. But again, don't forget tonight at 6 o'clock. But if you have your Bibles... Let's turn to the book of Acts, Acts uh, chapter 18, verse 23, as we're continuing uh, through the book of Acts. Now, in Acts chapter 1, uh, the risen Lord Jesus gave his disciples a command and a promise. Uh, he gave them a command to, to stay in Jerusalem, and he also gave them a promise that they will receive the Holy Spirit. And so when the disciples uh, misunderstood the command and the promise, Jesus kind of rocked their worlds and said the kingdom of God is not going to be restored to Israel, but rather the kingdom of God is going to be a global kingdom that's going to cross geographical and cultural barriers. And you are going to play a very important part in advancing the kingdom of God because you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth where you're going to proclaim my name, who I am, and what I have done and what scripture have, have talked about me and they were to proclaim how Christ was going to accomplish the ancient prophecy of crushing the head of the serpent and providing a way for sinners to be reconciled to God the Father. And so the book of Acts is filled with God's people proclaiming God's word, advancing God's kingdom, and God drawing and calling a people to himself despite persecution, despite opposition. And as a result of God's people declaring God's word, advancing God's kingdom, and God drawing and calling a people to himself, we're seeing people radically converted. We're seeing churches being planted. 
And so as Paul wraps up his second missionary journey and he reports to the church in Jerusalem and Antioch, all that took place in his second missionary journey, what we're going to see in verse 23, so if you like to write in your Bible, Acts 18, verse 23, that is when Paul starts his third missionary journey. And so in our text today, we're going to see really a range of people who need gospel-centered instruction for different reasons. So we're going to see believers who need gospel-centered instruction for encouragement and reinforcement. We're going to see believers who need gospel-centered instruction for doctrinal clarity. We're going to even see religious people who need gospel-centered instruction so that they can understand the gospel. And then we're going to see even non-believers who need gospel-centered instruction so that they can be saved. So let's look at verse 23 and see how the word of God is spreading. Acts 18 verse 23 says this, after spending some time there, he set out traveling through one place after another in the regions of Galatia and Phryga, strengthening all the disciples. So let's just stop here. So obviously after Paul uh, stopped after his second missionary journey and reported back to the church in Jerusalem and in Antioch and spent some time in Antioch, he decides to retrace his steps. So Paul is visiting all the churches that he planted in his first missionary journey that he visited in his second missionary journey, and now he's visiting these churches in his third missionary journey. So he's visiting the churches in Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. And really what we see Paul have is he has a burden for not just non-believers, but also for the believers. He has a burden in not just proclaiming the gospel to some for salvation, but also proclaiming the gospel to the churches that he has already planted so that they could be strengthened. And even though Paul was eager to get to Ephesus, the leading city where he wanted to plant a church, he first decided to visit these churches that he has already planted so that he could encourage them and strengthen them. And this is the desire we see in Paul's heart. He wanted to proclaim the gospel, not just so that non-believers could be saved and be converted, but so that also the believers that he's ministered to could be strengthened. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing we learn. Paul knows that these believers needed continued gospel-centered instruction for encouragement and reinforcement. Verse 23 says, strengthening all the disciples. So he understands they don't need gospel-centered instruction so that they can be encouraged, so that the gospel truths can be reinforced, so that they can be strengthened. It almost reminds me of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 to 25. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. And and this is what Paul did. Paul made sure that the churches that he has planted are gathering regularly, some of them even daily, and continually remind them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done so that they do not let go of the promises and the truths that they've heard, but they would, without wavering, hold on to it, knowing that God is faithful. 
And so we need gospel-centered instruction to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to, for the truth to be reinforced. Why? Because we are a people that are quick to forget. We are a people that are quick to get distracted. We have a tendency to take our eyes off of Christ and put our eyes on ourselves. We have a tendency to want to let go of the confession of the hope that we have. And this is why the author of Hebrews, or even encouraging uh, the, the, the Christians in that time to keep on holding on. Do not neglect the gathering of the saints. Keep on encouraging one another so that when you come and when you gather, you're reminding one another of these gospel truths so that you can be strengthened so that you can be encouraged so these truths can be reinforced in your hearts and in your minds and in your life so that you do not fall away and so really this was Paul's concern for the churches that he has planted and to be quite honest this is my concern even for us today as we find ourselves almost at the end of a global pandemic or wherever we are and wherever we're going to be in the future, one of the things that we have noticed was going to happen is what? Christians falling away. They're saying there's 25% of covenant members that will never return. And there's people in our church for almost a year and more that have not been in church, that have given up the gathering of the saints. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I'm a person that is quick to get distracted. I am quick to forget. I am quick to take my eyes off of Jesus. And if I don't regularly gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ to remind me of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, to stop looking to myself for salvation and start looking to Christ for salvation, I have a tendency to waver. I have a tendency to let go. And this was Paul's burden for the church. And this is why we constantly gather, where we gather on Sundays, where we gather in one another's homes to encourage one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that that we do not fall away, so that we do not waver. And so Paul was teaching these churches, even though he's just recently got back from visiting them because he had a burden for them. He wanted to see them be strengthened in the gospel. And so as Paul was visiting these churches, he wanted to make his way to Ephesus, but what Luke is doing is Luke is drawing our attention to another character named Apollos who is in Ephesus and who needed some doctrinal clarity. Let's look at verse 24. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, and an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the Scriptures arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And after he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So, so Luke introduces us to this character, Apollos, who was a well-educated man from Alexandria. You're like, how do I know he was a well-educated man? Because Luke tells us he was from Alexandria. Alexandria was the intellectual city renowned for its library. It was the Alexandrians who were the first ones to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Alexandria was the city to the famous philosopher Philo, and it was also the home of many wonderful Christian scholars like Clement, Athanasius, and Oregon. So what do we know about Apollos? We know that he was from Alexandria, which means he was a very well-educated man, and it almost seems that he appears to be a Christian. Look at verse 25 again. It says this, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he only knew about John's baptism. So what do we know? We know he's been instructed in the way of the Lord. We know that he was teaching about Jesus accurately, and Luke tells us that he was fervent in the Spirit. Now, in some of your translations, it's going to say fervent in spirit, and in some of it's going to say fervent in the spirit. And when Luke says fervent in spirit, the Greek does include the article the before the word spirit, which seems to indicate the Holy Spirit. And Paul would use a similar expression in Romans 12, verse 11. Be fervent in the Spirit. So in other words, when he is saying be fervent in the Spirit, he is saying he is filled with the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, what does that mean? It means you belong to Christ. You are a Christian. Now, there are some scholars who would look at Apollos and some believe and say, you know what? He is not a Christian. I disagree. Here's why. Again, look at verse 25. What does Luke tell us about him? He is instructed in the way of the Lord. He's teaching about Jesus accurately. And he's fervent in the Spirit. The only error is he only knows about John's baptism. That's the only error. So it seems that Apollos understood, believed, and preached the gospel of Christ boldly but he did not know about the ordinance of which to use the water of preaching the gospel. So in other words, he did not understand how baptism is tied to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only baptism he knew about was John's baptism, which meant he probably did not practice it whatsoever. And because he lived in a unique historical situation, he needed some clarity. So Apollos needed some doctrinal clarity. And what happened? As he was preaching, Aquila and Priscilla heard him, took him to to the side and provided some of that clarity where they taught him about Christian baptism, how the triune God places his name on his people, how baptism illustrates the union with Christ's life, Christ's death, and also with Christ's resurrection. Now, I do think there's some things we can learn about the observation of Aquila and Priscilla, how they corrected Apollos, and also Apollos, how he humbly received the correction. Look at verse 26 again. It says, He began speaking boldly in the synagogue, and after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So what did they do? 
They didn't correct him publicly to bring shame and embarrassment on him, but instead they demonstrated humility. They listened to him, brought him to the side, maybe even invited into their homes to, talk, to sit down and talk about the gospel and talk about what baptism means, and they did it in a gentle way. And I think for some of us, we can take note from Aquila and Priscilla and how they corrected him. They didn't do it publicly. They didn't try to embarrass him, but rather in a humble way invited him, sat down with him, and talked to him about baptism and what it means. And how did Apollos receive this? Obviously, he was way more educated than Aquila and Priscilla was combined, and yet he humbly received the correction. He listened to their counsel, adopted their position. In verse 27, we're going to see the result of their counsel. But here's the second thing that Luke shows us that I want us to learn. Now, not only do believers need gospel-centered instruction for encouragement and reinforcement, but the second thing he shows us with Apollos is that believers also need gospel-centered instruction for doctrinal clarity. We need gospel-centered instruction for doctrinal clarity, which means that there are going to be from time to time where we might need some uh, correction on doctrinal clarity. Further instruction in the Word of God. And, And here's one of the things that we have to understand. Like, I hope that your theology over time is going to change. I hope that the more you study the Word of God, The more you engross yourself with the Word of God, the more your understanding of God will start to evolve and the more that your theology will change in a sense where you might need some doctrinal clarity. But but there is the danger, okay? There are certain fundamental truths that we hold very tightly that's not going to change where Scripture is very clear. But then there's also a lot of doctrine out there and and, and knowledge about God that Scripture is not 100% clear that we have to hold, in a sense, loosely. That we have to kind of evolve and, and allow the Word of God and our understanding of the Word of God to speak into those areas where we might need some clarity. And this is for Apollos. He needed some doctrinal clarity. And maybe for many of us, we can, can relate to, to, to Apollos. Maybe there are some areas in our lives that we're not strong on, that we don't really have a full understanding on, and we need doctrinal clarity. And the good news is, as we proclaim the gospel and who Jesus is and what he has done, his life, death, burial, and his resurrection, and him coming back and consummating all things, those truths will be able to speak into our lives in order to provide some doctrinal clarity. And again, look at verse 27. Look at how he received this instruction after being corrected. After receiving the gospel-centered instruction and receiving the clarity, this look at verse 27. It doesn't say he was mad and he left the faith and he did his own thing. No, no, this is what happened. Verse 27, he wanted to cross over to Achaia, that's Corinth, The brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Who were the brothers and sisters? Aquila and Priscilla. What did they do? They wrote a letter of commendation for the believers in Corinth to accept Apollos. And then it says, after he arrived, he was a great help for those who by grace had believed. 
For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So after receiving this doctrinal clarity, he wasn't discouraged. He was not mad, but he was greatly encouraged. And he decided to go to Corinth. And Priscilla and Quilla were greatly encouraged, decided to write him a letter of commendation. And Luke tells us that he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, and he strongly was able to refute these Jews. And later on, uh, the Lord, we would find out that the Lord used Apollos greatly in, in the church of Corinth. Uh, Paul would talk about Apollos in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 to 6. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believe, and each has the role of the Lord has given. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Notice how Paul refers to Apollos, a servant of the Lord, a contributor who played a major role in advancing the gospel. Paul planted it, Apollos watered it, and God made it grow. And while Apollos was watering the seed in Corinth, Paul finally, after strengthening the churches that he's already planted, he finally makes his way into Ephesus. And then he kind of runs into some unusual disciples. And this is kind of one of those weird texts. We're going to have to take our time to walk through it. Look at chapter 19, uh, verse 1. It says this. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then who you baptize, he asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about 12 men in all. Kind of see why I say let's, let's take our time because there's a lot of weird things going on and there can be a lot of weird applications that people take on that's not right. So, so, so let's talk here. What's going on here? The first thing we know is Paul arrives in Ephesus. Okay, that's easy. Let, let, let's get all the main things out. Paul arrives in Ephesus and he encounters some disciples. Now these disciples uh, were, as Alistair Begg calls, 12 almost Christians. I think we get confused with the word disciple and equate disciple to believer. Can a disciple be a believer? Yes. Is a disciple always a believer? No. Okay? So don't equate disciple to believer, but they are 12 disciples. Maybe they were disciples of John the Baptist. We don't know. But there are 12 almost Christians. They almost seem to resemble Apollos where it kind of talks about John's baptism. That's the only baptism they know about. But yet Luke doesn't give us any information about it. They weren't trained in the word of God. They weren't taught according to the way of the Lord. They weren't teaching the word of God accurately. And they did not have the spirit. In fact, they did not even heard of the spirit. Now imagine Paul's walking into Ephesus. He runs into these disciples. 
Now, that's not the very first question he's going to ask is, hey, do you have the Holy Spirit inside of you? That's not the very question a normal person is going to ask. The only reason you're going to ask it is when two and two does not go together. Something is wrong. So maybe when Paul arrived in Ephesus, he saw these disciples. But the way they were acting, maybe their demeanor, maybe the things they were saying, maybe the way they were treating one another was a little off, made Paul wonder, do these guys know Jesus? Are they filled with the Spirit? Because there does not seem to be much evidence of them being filled with the Holy Spirit. And after observing their lives and hanging out with them for maybe a couple of days, he finally asked them a question. And this is what he says. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is a nice way of saying, are you a Christian? Because here's the reality. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not in Christ. Paul says, and you're like, why say that? Well, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Which meant, since they did not even hear of the Holy Spirit, since they did not have the Holy Spirit, they were not in Christ. They were not believers. They might be religious people who followed the way of John the Baptist. They were almost Christian, but they were not Christian. John Stott describes their condition well. He says, in a word, they were still living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist. They understood neither that the new age had been ushered in by Jesus, nor those who believe in him and are baptized into him received the distinctive blessings of the new age, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, John Stott says, they are stuck in the Old Testament. They did not understand how Jesus ushered in the new age, fulfilled all the prophecy that the prophets spoke about and an evidence of being in Christ. And what the prophets spoke about is, I will give you a new heart and I will place my spirit inside of you. They did not understand it. Were they good people? Were they moral people? Were they religious people? Were they disciples that followed the Old Testament? Yes. But they did not know Christ. They were not in Christ because they did not have the Holy Spirit. And after Paul confirmed what he saw with his eyes, these guys don't belong to Christ. What does he do? He preaches the gospel to them. He tells them, verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, that is in Jesus. I love what he does with John the Baptist. He doesn't say, you know what, just take that baptism and throw it away. That doesn't mean anything. But what does he do? He ties that John's baptism. And what's John's baptism points to? It points to Jesus, to the one you need to believe in. And John's baptism is useless if you do not believe in the one named Jesus Christ. And when they finally believed in the one, what happened? 
Paul stretched out his hands and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately they spoke in tongues and they began to prophesy. So here's the kind of hairy part, okay? Because it almost seems a little weird. It means that it almost seems like Paul preaches the gospel to them, they believe in Jesus, but they don't automatically get the Holy Spirit. It's as if Paul had to like transfer some power over to them and once he did the transfer, they were able to speak in tongues and, and so people take it and this is what we need to do. You need to believe and then I'm going to stretch out my hands and supercharge you with the Holy Spirit and transfer my power onto you. Remember in the beginning of Acts, we said we need to look at the book of Acts. Is it prescriptive or descriptive? Prescriptive telling us what we should be doing, what we should be looking like or descriptive simply describing what happened. And there comes times in the text where it's both. Which is this one? Prescriptive or descriptive? It is simply descriptive, nothing else. Why? Especially when it comes to the Holy Spirit part. Why? Because if you look at the rest of the book of Acts, this is a very unique story. The Holy Spirit did not come on them through the laying off of hands, but simply through them receiving Christ in all the other areas. In very few parts in the book of Acts where there are this outward, audible, visible sign of the Holy Spirit. That was not the norm. Did it happen throughout? Yeah, Acts, absolutely. But it did not happen in every single case of every single conversion throughout the book of Acts. If that happened in every single conversion, in every part of the book of Acts, I would say it's descriptive. It's prescriptive, but it is not. So, so what do we make uh, about these believers of Paul laying his hands on them, speaking in tongues, prophesying? I think the best way to look at it is this. God is sovereign. That's obvious truth. But he knows where you are in life. He knows what you need. So, so, so picture these disciples here. Did these disciples think they belonged to Christ before Paul or belonged to God before Paul? Yeah. Did, did they think they were, were, they were justified and reconciled and redeemed and they were good with God? Yes. And then all of a sudden, Paul comes to them and asks them these questions and what happens? Truth is being revealed. Now all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, no. We don't belong to God. We don't belong to Christ. We don't have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us. And so they came from belief to doubt. You don't really believe. And when they heard the gospel, they believed. And what did these believers need? They needed, in a sense, assurance. They needed, in a sense, an outward, a visible sign. So now guess what these guys have? There is no doubt that they don't have the Spirit. It is an absolute 100% confirmation that they have the Holy There's not even a debate about it. Why? Because them being filled with the Holy Spirit was audible. It was visible. And so the reason the Lord did it that way is for these believers. Remember how, how, how we said the reason why God allowed some of these Gentiles to speak in tongues and prophesy? Why? It's so that the Jews can look and say, you know what? We can't argue. They got the Spirit. Here's all the evidence. And that's the same with these believers. It wasn't for the audience to be assured, 
but it was rather for themselves to be assured that the Spirit now is living inside of them as they're declaring the praises of God. But that's not the norm. The norm is repentance. The norm is faith in Jesus. Possession of the Holy Spirit and that visible profession is through faith demonstrated in baptism. So, so here's what Luke shows us. Not only do believers need gospel-centered instruction to be encouraged and to be gospel truths to be reinforced and for even some doctrinal clarity, but Luke is even showing us how religious people with good motives and good intentions, with good ethics, need gospel-centered instruction for gospel understanding. Here's a bunch of guys who are probably good guys, probably in the synagogue, probably faithful to the Lord. And yet they didn't have gospel understanding. They really didn't know what they believed. They didn't have the spirit inside of them. And so this is what Luke shows us. And what does Paul give? He gives them gospel-centered instruction. Now they have understanding. Now their lives have been radically transformed. And, and, and I think we, we can apply this to, to our lives. Just like there were these 12 almost Christians... I think there's many people in churches and even here maybe this morning who might be like these 12 almost Christians, know about Jesus, but not really know Jesus. Maybe, maybe know some gospel truths, but really not understand the gospel and what you believe in. And Paul even talks about uh, to the Corinthians that we ought to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. Uh, the, the, the Apostle John in 1 John talks about these tests that every believer needs to pass. We need a doctrinal test. We know the gospel truths that we believe in. We need an ethical test. Are we walking in light of the gospel, in light in love, and then also an experiential test? Have we experienced the presence of the Spirit in our lives? And so, so, so the apostle forces us as Christians, and even the Christians in those times, to examine ourselves. And it's one of the things we don't want to do. Why do we not want to examine our lives? Because sometimes we do not want to admit the truth. And so we avoid it. We even look at it as legalism or it's none of your business, it's my business alone. And yet the apostles encourage Christians, examine yourself daily. Look into your life. Do you know what you believe? Can you articulate the gospel truths? Are you walking in light and love of the gospel? Have you experienced the Holy Spirit in your lives? It's not just a thing you do yearly. It's a thing you should do almost weekly and daily. And so here's some questions that, that, that I want you to, to, to maybe write down and maybe reflect on because maybe some of you are like these 12 disciples that are almost Christian. Do you know what you believe? Like, do you know what you believe? And, and maybe another way of looking at it is, can you, are you able to articulate some of the gospel truths? Do you walk in light and love because of the gospel? Do you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Have you sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you? And these 12 almost Christians reminds me of the conversion story of John Wesley. 
John Wesley's dad was a pastor, his mom was godly. John Wesley uh, even eventually became an assistant to his dad. He studied at Oxford, became a professor of Greek and logic, eventually became an ordained minister and even a missionary. And it was on his missionary trip when he went to go minister to the American Indians in Georgia. After he failed, he made his way back to England. And this is what he wrote. He says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? And yet, by God's grace in America, he ran into these Christians that were, surprise, surprise, dedicated to the Word of God, to prayer and worship. And this is what he, he wrote in his journal. He says, on May 24th, 1738, in the evening, I went very unwilling to a society in Aldergate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And so prior to the experience, here you have John Wesley, a pastor, a missionary, a scholar, and where does he find himself? Unconverted. Maybe knowing about Christ, but not knowing Christ. And notice in his journal entry, as he was hearing the preacher preaching from Romans, he found himself warm inside, finally realizing and trusting in Christ, but in Christ alone to take care of his sins, not in himself and his good work and him being a pastor and him being a missionary. And it was only when he came to that point when the reality of the gospel set root in his heart and transformed him. You see, I think for many of us, we wrestle. We look to Christ and us at the same time. You cannot look to Christ and to yourself. It is only when you look to Christ and Christ alone can you experience salvation. And this is what the gospel emphasizes. The gospel emphasizes it's not something that you need to do. It's something that's already been done for you. And that is in the life, work, and burial, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So look to him and him alone. Put your faith in him and him alone, not in yourself. And so Luke shows us, as believers are strengthened in receiving doctrinal clarity, he also shows us how religious people gain gospel understanding. It's all through the proclamation of the gospel. I'm almost done. Uh, the last point, if you're taking notes, what Luke is going to show us is how believers need gospel-centered instruction for salvation. Look at verse 8. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So what happened? 
Paul finds him in the synagogue again in Ephesus, but this time it's not one and done. He's there for three months, which means these Jews in Ephesus maybe were more open to the word of God. Some of them believed, but some of them, their hearts were hardened. And when they started slandering the way of Jesus, Paul says, I'm done. I'm moving on. And they met in the city hall of Tyrannus, which was a public place right next to the synagogue. And he met there for two years every day, preaching the word of God. And many Jews and Greeks from all different backgrounds all came to hear the word of God. Let's wrap it up here. Here Luke shows us just a range of people who need the word of God and who need gospel-centered instruction. Some people who knew Christ, they need encouragement, they need reinforcement. Others were genuine Christians, but they just need uh, some, some doctrinal clarity. Others were religious and knew a lot about God, but they did not go know God. They needed gospel understanding. And then some need to hear the gospel, and some believed and others refuse to believe. But, but here's the great news. The great news is that many people of great diversity believe when the gospel was taught. They were either encouraged or strengthened. They either received doctrinal clarity, gospel understanding, and their lives were radically transformed. But I think for us, here's one of the things... I want to leave you with this last thought. As I hope you receive every Sunday gospel-centered instruction, and the gospel is being proclaimed in one way or another, and even if you gather in your groups, and the gospel is being proclaimed, and you're reminding one another, another of gospel truths, there are some questions I want you to reflect on. And it's questions I've asked you before. But some of these questions, I just want you to think about it right now. Let's just close our eyes. Let's just remain seated. Let's focus on these questions because I think these questions are easy for us to answer them but not really analyze them. Here's the very first question. Do you know what you believe? Were you able to articulate some gospel truths like can you preach the gospel to yourself do do, do you have a, a gospel understanding how, how are you being encouraged and strengthened by the gospel daily. Just think about those questions. Just let it sit and meditate on them. Maybe there's some of you that say, you know what, Neil, I I do know what I believe in. I I can articulate the gospel truth. Praise the Lord for that. 
And maybe you're saying, yes, I just need to be reminded, but I'm quick to forget. My encouragement to you is do not give up the gathering of the saints. Make sure you gather in one another's homes. Make sure when you gather around the dinner table with your family that you encourage one another with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. That you remind one another of the promises that you have received in Christ as you cling to those. But then maybe there are some of you that say, you know what, I really don't know what I believe in. I I hear you use the word gospel, but I really have no idea what it is. I need help. See, the gospel in its simplest form is good news that needs to be proclaimed. And it's news about what God has done through the life, through the death, through the burial and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem and to reconcile us, to pay for our sins in full. See, all of us were enemies of God. All of us were children of darkness. And because of Jesus, who died in our place, paid for our sins, satisfied God's wrath that was geared towards us, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And once we were not a people, but because of Jesus and us putting our faith in Jesus, now we are God's people. Once we did not receive mercy, And because of Jesus, we have received mercy. And that mercy and that grace is available to all. To all those who are called. To those who look to Christ and not to self. So when you think about your life, who do you look to for salvation? Who do you look to for meaning, for purpose? Who do you look to for significance, for peace, and for joy? And the only answer should be Jesus. Because it's only Jesus that can give us life. It's only Jesus that can give us purpose and meaning and significance and joy and hope and peace. And because of our sinful nature, we have a tendency to look to self and we have to force ourselves to stop looking at ourselves, to stop looking at others, and to look at Christ and Christ alone. So this morning, who are you looking to? And as we get ready to to sit at the table, this table is a visual expression It is a reminder as we look at it, as we see the elements, the bread and the cup. We are reminded of the life, the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're reminded of his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, the new covenant that we have in him. That as we eat it, as we feast on him, we're reminded that he is the living bread, that life can only be found in him. And it's because of his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. Now we can be in a covenant relationship with God.
And he invites us to sit at his table, not as guests, but as sons and daughters of the king, heirs to the kingdom. And so as the ushers come forward to hand out the elements, we we ask, use this time to reflect on gospel truth. Use this time to remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Meditate on his body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. And then as we hand out the elements, we ask for everybody to wait so that together, as brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, the family can participate and celebrate it together. But then there's also a warning. Yes, there's an invitation to celebrate, but there's also the warning. If you are living in sin and you are not repentant of it, first repent before you celebrate that. And if you're not in Christ, or maybe you're not in good standing with your local church, you're running away, please abstain from this. You're only eating, drinking judgment upon yourselves. First make right with one another. First make right with Christ. Then come and celebrate that. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that as we hand out these elements, that your Spirit would fill our hearts and our minds as we gaze upon your Son and behold the wonderful salvation that you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your initiating work through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, the new covenant that we have in you. Thank you that you paid for our sins in full, that you satisfied the wrath of God. Thank you that you have given us your spirit and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that you are with us forever to the end of the age and you're coming back to make all things new, to redeem and restore all of creation. And Lord, what a wonderful day. We cannot wait for all the wrongs in the world is going to be made right. All the injustices of the world is going to receive justice when the ultimate judge comes to judge the living and the dead. And all the enemies will flee before you. And every tongue and every knee will bow and confess you as Lord. For you are the only king and the rightful king. And may we worship you, may we look to you, may we be in awe of you, may we bless your name, for you are worthy of it. So come and meet us, convict us, overwhelm us with your presence. And even as we respond to your word and worship, help us to worship you, because we cannot worship you without you. We need you. So come. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. May we stand and may we worship our King.